Welcome, everyone, and thank you for uh, clicking on the podcast page uh, here at Gershberg Law Firm. I am joined today um, by an awesome colleague of mine named Sam Glover. Sam, um, you have a really, really cool website. You do a bunch of different things in the legal tech field. I'm going to turn it over to you because your intro would be a thousand times better than mine. So why don't you tell everyone who you are, what you do? Sure. I'm Sam Glover, and I'm the editor-in-chief of Lawyerist which I have been writing since I think late 2006. Uh, it's a blog about technology, marketing, ethics, um, and really anything else to do with law practice. We're, uh, we're decent sized and uh, this has been my day job for about a year now. I actually I don't actively practice anymore although I take pro bono cases here and then when uh, when my wife lets me. So, gotcha. gotcha. Yeah. Um, take me back Take me back to law school because this is something I always ask people and, and, and my buddies as well. Um, sadly, many of them are attorneys. Um, but take me back to law school. What, what made you go? What did you want to do when you were in law school? And, and how did that sort of evolve into, into lawyerist? Uh, boy, that's a good question. I don't know. I mean, I think when I went to law school and my, my dream was to, well, I suppose like most law students, I had a really... Um, unclear picture of what I wanted to do. I just wanted to be a civil litigator. Right. And I didn't know how I was going to do it or what that was going to look like, but I, w I knew I wanted to litigate. And, and that's what I wound up doing. I wound up suing debt collectors and defending people sued by debt collectors in my own practice for um, seven years, I think. So, Was was lawyers the thing you were thinking about or how did that sort of come about? And I mean, it, it takes you know a certain sort of amount of gumption and, and chutzpah, we say, in Brooklyn. Um, to essentially say, you know what? I went to law school. I'm I'm going to do this website thing now. I'm I'm no longer really going to practice. Like, how did that? How does well, that work? I mean, in the beginning, it was just a place for me to rant about terrible practice management software for lawyers. And right. um, and you know, I, I guess I, I've always wound up doing tech, no matter what job I have. Right. Um, I went to work retail at an out at an outdoor store and wound up building them a new retail website. Um, Wow. I went to work for a solo practitioner who did criminal defense. I wound up building him a new website. Uh, I went to work for uh, a small law firm and uh, did the first article on what would now be called a blog, um, which took you know six months of editing and revising, and <laughs> because that you had to go through the chain of command. Sure. <clears throat> but um, so I think it, it, in retrospect, it was just natural that I wound up doing something tech-related. But it wasn't a business until Aaron Street, who I went to law school with, um, approached me and was kind of looking for a new scheme and said, why don't we take this thing and turn it into a business? And, you know, at the time, I was probably getting a, a couple hundred page views a day, a couple hundred visitors a day. And, you know, now, we, now we're up to 350,000 page views a month. And so... I'm amazed that we even thought it would have been a viable business at that point. Um, because looking back, I can't even the the websites that are out there that are getting that kind of traffic. Where we, it's hard to imagine how they could grow, but we we have, and you know, so it's possible. And and we, so we just kind of put a little bit of money into it and ran with it. And here we are, five or six years later, and uh, and it's a day job for me. So it's pretty pretty crazy that that worked out. Did you ever? So, and I think this this goes to a lot of questions that people have, and, and we're going to get to a lot of these things later on. But I mean, like the the common question that people will have is, well, you know, I'm going to set up a website, I'm going to set up a blog. How does one go from 350 page views a month, or a couple hundred page views a month, to where you are now? And I, I'm sure part of it is good content, right? And that's that's the formula for anyone. But you know, there's got to be like a tipping point. There's got to be something because you know you can write incredible stuff, but someone's going to have to read that and share that and constantly come back over and over again to see what else is new. So you know, expound on that if you can. I mean, what 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 gets you from a couple hundred to to where you are now? Well, I mean, the, the reason that when we talk about, you know, uh, marketing with blogs and social media and stuff, we're always focused on other stuff like SEO and um, social media and stuff. The reason is because the foundation of everything is good content. Right. So if you don't, if you don't have fundamental good content on your site or your account or whatever, you're not going anywhere. Right. So let's assume you've got that um, because that's foundational. Um, then, you know, I think in the early days, we just, uh, one of the first things we did was just tell everybody by email repeatedly, um, <laughs> you know, here's, here's our, here's what we did. We're relaunching. Here's our latest post. And 
I'm sure our friends and family got tired of it, but you know, we used our own networks to try and grow the business and that wound up working. Um, but it also, you know, at some point you take on momentum. I mean, I think there are sort of plateaus. It's hard to get past 1500 page views a month and then it's hard to get past 30,000 or what, you know, whatever. I don't know what the numbers are, but you'll hit plateaus and, and you just sort of promote it and, and hope for the best. But, you know, it's, it's funny. I, I read all these, you know, I try to, I try to read about, um, you know, we, we're happy with our traffic, but of course we want to be 10 times bigger. And sure. so I read all this stuff about social media promotion that everybody else does. And some of it I discard and some of it I think about, but, um, you know, it's amazing. So few people are doing the basic things, um, like making sure every post gets shared out to Twitter. Um, but then the people who are doing all of those things, uh, often aren't, you know, taking the time to button up the fundamental having great content. So I think it's just the combination of trying to hit all those things, having great content, making sure your stuff gets shared out to your social media profiles, making sure that at least, you know, occasionally you let everybody in your network know what you're doing and what you've what you've most recently published and and then if you have great content it will eventually take off i i would add on to that and I, I'm, I'm curious to know your, your feeling on it you know lawyers that i speak to so i'll sit down with lawyers all the time and and my practice <laughs> essentially started for the most part you know it was online based in other words I didn't have a dollar to my name, so I was uh, advertising on City Search, which was the precursor to Yelp, and then right. I started blogging, and and that helped out because I didn't, you know, I couldn't compete with the attorneys that were spending thousands of dollars a month on SEO and Google AdWords. Um, but many of the attorneys that you know, or I should say, some of the attorneys that I sit down with, essentially say, well, look, you know, how do I make money from this? In other words, how do I get clients from this? And my feeling more and more is that, you know, that's the wrong way to do it. So. If you're doing this, and I don't mean you know advertising in the actual site itself based on page views, that's perfectly fine. Right. But you know, if you're starting <coughs> out and you're saying, "Well, I'm going to start a blog because a blog is going to mean the clients are coming to me and they're going to, you know, they're going to pay me and I'm going to make a bunch of money from this," that's the wrong way to start, I, I think. And I, I'd love to get sort of your. Oh, it's ideas totally the wrong content. way, right, I, right? So, I mean, first of all, let's be clear: um, lawyerist has never probably never directly gotten me a single client. It, it may have gotten me clients because it's expanded my network, but right. writing a blog about legal technology and marketing is not the way to get clients. <laughs> so, so my experience with lawyerists doesn't really transfer to writing a blog that you're hoping builds your practice. Sure. I did have one of those. I still do. Um, it's called Caveat mTOR. It's a consumer rights blog. Um, and, you know, I, at its, when I was suing debt collectors and defending people sued by debt collectors, that brought in at least 50% of my new clients. Sure. Um, but yeah, if your goal, if you start out with the mentality of I'm going to write this thing and it's going to get me clients, your, it's, your blog is probably going to suck. It is. <laughs> um, and, you know, Kevin O'Keefe uh, at Lexblog just posted something about, you know, profit-driven versus purpose-driven blogging. And I, I, those descriptions are not helpful to me, but... Um, I, I just think the mentality of I'm going to get clients is not how you do it. You you get clients the same way you get readers on on a blog like Lawyerist by writing what you would want to see yourself. Right. Like if if you wouldn't sit down and read your own blog, then you're doing it wrong. Right. And and I think that's sort of the easiest litmus test I can provide is: Do you think you'd want to spend ten minutes reading your own blog? Plus, I, I would imagine you have to do it in your own voice too, which a lot of people don't. Yeah don't do. So they'll say, you know, bankruptcy today is a very difficult field. Uh, and it is difficult because the means to and it's just this very stale kind of, you know, thing, because they think that's, that's what people want to hear when, right, in reality, you know, I think we're, we're, we're going more towards. Um, and I'm never going to use the word brand because I hate that goddamn word. Oh God, I hate that. Yeah, yeah. it's a, such a horrible Can word. We talk but, about disruption next. Too. Oh, we're we're oh we're getting into <laughs> disruption, my man. We're getting into disruption. But I think it's more about the personality. Like if, if you can get your personality to shine through a little bit through a blog, I think you can differentiate yourself. At least you know some people are going to hate it, and then other people like many people hate the way I write, um, and they're never going to hire me because of that to a certain extent. Um, but then there's others that say, well, I like the, you know, the sarcastic tone or, or something like that. And I think a lot of people sort of miss that um, in addition to the content itself. I don't know if you find that as well. Well, and, you know, so I used to be a real champion. Like I, I had such great success with my consumer law blog that I felt like everybody should, lawyers should all start blogs. And, right. you know, I, I've since realized a couple of things. One is 
most lawyers suck at blogging. Mm-hmm. And it's just, it's not the way, it, you know, it's not legal right. Most lawyers aren't very good at legal writing either, but, <laughs> um, you know, it's like, it's like saying every lawyer should go out and start a newspaper. Yes. Well, no, I mean, it's not, that's just not the case. Some people are right for it and some people aren't. Um, but the flip side too is like, not every every practice area lends itself to blogging. Sure. Um, my practice area did because my clients had a lot of questions about their their legal situation and many of them didn't realize that a lawyer could help them. Sure. And so I had a really easy time writing posts that would answer the questions they had before they even knew that they needed a lawyer. And then I'd already sort of, I, I guess if you want to use the word captured, I'd, I'd basically captured their attention at that point and I'd captured the potential client if they were in my state. Right. And so my practice area was very well suited to blogging. Many aren't. And so I think you have to be really careful about, um, you know, do I have the kind of a niche that I can write about and people will read it and the people who might become potential clients will read it. Yeah, I think you brought up an awesome and, and crucial point, and um, not enough people say it in, in terms of saying, "Look, maybe you shouldn't have a blog. You know, maybe right. you shouldn't be speaking and and, and just pe- leave the website up and hope someone calls." Because you have attorneys that essentially, what happens is you you find attorneys that look at other attorneys, and one attorney says, "Wow, this guy, you know, put up a blog, and he seems to be getting all these clients and all this money. Well, I'm going to put up a blog then." I don't know right. the first thing about writing, and you know, then you have essentially a disaster where they do one blog post that's about I don't know 300 words from <laughs> 2011, and right. a client clicks on that website and they see the blog and it's it's essentially completely stale, or maybe they'll do one a year, um, and that that hurts them. And I think that part of that is because if you don't have the time, most people don't understand how much time you have to devote to to getting it right. Um, and writing a blog spot. Actually, why don't you tell me about sort of the, the process itself and how much sort of goes into that? Because I think that a lot of lawyers think, look, I'll put something up, you know, I'll, I'll bang out 300 words about, I don't know, real estate, um, and I'm good. There's my blog. But it's, it's right. not like that. No, and I think it's it takes less time than a lot of lawyers think. So like that firm I worked for, it was a medium-sized insurance defense firm, and that you know it took us six months literally to get up one article so it it should take way less time than that yes but it absolutely takes more time than a lot of other lawyers think um which is you know we we've on lawyers we've started doing what we're calling notes which is basically sub 300 word posts but Mm -hmm. that's not going to get you search traffic it's probably not going to get you good traffic it's going to get people stopping in to see something really quick from twitter and then they'll know it's never going to last so yeah i mean i i think you know, I, I, I read in, there's a really good book uh, about blogging uh, called Blogger's Boot Camp. And anyone who's considering starting a blog or anyone who has one or started one um, should read that book. It's written by, um, I think they're two of the founding bloggers of Engadget. Uh, okay. I'm not sure about that. But uh, so they've been around forever and they really know what they're talking about. And one of the things they recommend is getting into the habit of writing a thousand words a day. And I think that's a really good habit. I'm not sure I actually do that anymore or, or even ever did, but, but that is about the level of, of, um, of content, I guess, that you have to be able to put together. And, and some people do it really well. I mean, there's, you know, Scott Greenfield at Simple Justice probably pumps out 3,000 words a day before breakfast. Before breakfast, and, literally. Yeah, and that's insane. Yes. Um, uh, you know, he, and he does a pretty good job of it. I, I'm less discursive in my writing. I try to be more concise. Um, and so maybe it takes me a little bit longer to get out less fewer words, but sure. um, but no, I think I think it's reasonable to expect that blogging will take at least an hour a day, if not more. Do you know um, to touch on your point in terms of writing a thousand words a day? You know, I always had a problem with that as well. And and while I was away on vacation, I read this really awesome book uh, called Mini Habits, and mm-hmm. I got it on my Kindle, which was which was um, it, it took me six months to actually buy a Kindle because I, I just I hated the idea of letting go of physical books, mm-hmm. um, cliche hipster. Uh, but uh, you know I finally did, and essentially the the book and it's helped me tremendously in terms of my posts, in terms of everything that I'm doing in the office. Is you, you set a daily goal of not a thousand but fifty. You set a daily goal of instead of fifty push-ups, one push-up a day, um, and the reason is that when you put the levels at such small sort of, in other words, 50 words a day is nothing. You almost feel pathetic if you don't write 50 words a day. 
but you have to get it done. So some days you're gonna do 50, and other days, realistically, you're gonna sit down and you're gonna do 500 or 5,000, right? Um, but on any given day, you're not gonna do less than 50. And once you do that over and over, and I'm talking about for months, with no excuses, no days off, no anything, um, you essentially form a habit. And you're able to approach these things. And, and just like anything else, when you compound 50 words a day to 50 words a day to then 500 and 5,000 or another day 300 and 500, you, know, you, you get a lot of material there. Um, it's like what Seinfeld does. They, they use an example of Seinfeld where Jerry Seinfeld every single day he gets a calendar and he writes at least one joke a day. doesn't matter if it's horrible. doesn't have to be the best joke in the world. But every single day he marks off that day. Um, to show that he actually wrote at least one joke. He could write five, he could write 10, but the purpose of that is is the habit. And so, you know, just to jump on your point, I, I think that's imperative um, that people read books like this because it's not, you know, it's not so easy to just say, I'm starting a blog. You have to put in um, work essentially almost daily, even to find topics to write about, which is so tough after, you know, two, 300 posts um, oh, yeah. to do, yeah, to find something that's interesting. Yeah, and I, I think you're, I mean, it's all about, it's all about the habit, but it's also about considering blogging just something that you actually do. I mean, I yep. I know most lawyers think of blogging as something they'll do when they get time, and lawyers never have time, right? 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 Like we never have free time. And so, if if you think blogging is an important part of how you're going to get business, then you need to consider it an important part of how you you get business and make time for it. That's I'm not saying every lawyer should blog and you have to make time for blogging, but if this is part of your strategy, then you got to take it seriously. So, where do you? I mean, talking about blogging and lawyers and everything else. Where, so, where do you see lawyers going? Where Where do you want to go? Uh, more of the same, I think. Yeah. Uh, but you know, we're you know we're trying to. We've rearranged. If you go to the site right now, you'll see on the head that we've uh, in the. Um, what do you call it? The. The header. Uh, well, yeah, up in the header, but yeah. is it, there's a newspaper term I was looking for. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> but, um, <laughs> that, that, that the, the header is the, the amount of that's yeah. my vernacular for for websites. But, but we've it. we've sort of split it up into kind of how I think of them as channels. You know, we've got our articles, which are longer posts. We've got our notes, which are short posts. We've got our email newsletter. We've got our Q and A forum. Um, we're gonna we're working on a podcast. Uh, we'd like to expand to video. Um, so you know, we're just trying to expand the channels in which we publish. But sure. Um, fundamentally, it is we publish, and it's a publication, and that's what we want it to be. And so, more and bigger and better. Um, you know, we're always trying to improve our content. We we cut back to one post a weekday um, about a year ago uh, because we wanted to focus on trying to get out longer, better articles uh, instead of just trying to pump out content. So, do you see that as a recent shift? I mean, the, so. A lot of what I was reading was in the past, and I know we, we should have probably done this from, from the start, essentially, you know, when you start blogging, but it seems to be the quality, I mean, it's always been quality is important, but it, it's being highlighted more and more that you don't just have to, you know, throw out 10 posts a week just to get, you know, Google to, to be able to index that and, and find you no matter what way possible. Um, but it's more long form, sometimes long form, but more sort of genuine, um, it's a word I'm sort of looking for. I don't want to say immersive, but just large posts that that have a lot of detail in them. I mean, do you see that now? I, yeah, I mean, I think long form is is got its its following, but I think what we're really seeing is you need to publish content that people can't get everywhere else. Sure. Right. Like there are so many blogs out there publishing the same stuff. I I got one of those really funny like you know pets looking evil posts or something, and I went through it, and at the bottom I see you know, a little hat tip to another blog. And yep. it turns out they just completely stole the entire thing and yep. republished it. And then that site actually had the same thing at the bottom of it. And so it had actually been republished five times. Yeah. Um, and, That's crazy. And it's, you know, it's link bait. It goes viral. People share it. But it's, you know, the, the real value is in adding something to a story or adding something to, to what is out there. So that can be original commentary which is what blogging has really started as is here's what I think about a subject. Sure. But you know, uh, a, a blogger who I really admire is Ken White at Popat. Yeah. Uh, both because he's just smart as shit and, and uh, but also because he always adds something to the conversation. Um, he'll go to Pacer and get the source documents that nobody else has bothered to get. Yep. Um, and, and so I think it's stuff like that that 
um, if you can go and add facts, now everybody has to cite you as the source of the facts. Right. And you've, so you've added something actually valuable to the conversation. You haven't just added your two cents, which are worth less than two cents in many cases. Sure. And, and especially if your two cents were a quote or a pithy comment. There are bloggers who do that successfully, like um, um, uh, Daring Fireball's John Gruber ha does, has one of the few blogs that essentially he publishes 100 words a day, but they're very pithy and clever commentary on other quotes, but most blogs can't get away with that. No. Um, so I think that it's really um, substance is key. Uh, publishing yet another guide to how to, find, how to pick a lawyer is totally worthless. Um, but picking up a, uh, a popular subject that's in the news and adding facts to the narrative is valuable, and that's what the goal should be. I think that's going to change a lot of um, – I think you're right on. I think that's going to change a lot of the, the way lawyers will write going forward because, you know, six years ago, I could have written – um, you know, what happens to my car? And I did, and it brought me clients because they would Google what happens to my car if I file for bankruptcy. Yep. What you see now is that there are literally 4,000 bankruptcy attorneys that are blogging what happens to my car if I file for bankruptcy. And yeah. you're lost. You're lost in the noise. Um, and I think lawyers, you know, at a certain point um, don't have that much to write about. I mean, there's only so many times you can write about uh, you know, someone violating the FDCPA and calling at 9 p.m., right? I mean, right. There's, there's certain things you can you can throw <clears throat> in there. But to your point, they're not going to add some kind of original point of view to that. Um, Ken White has an amazing ability to, you know, even with Prenda and other things, he would put a, a particular case on and go so deep, as you mentioned, in it, and then throw his insights in, which made it completely original, right? So it's not just, well, th these are the statutes that, that come into play with something like this, where some other blogger can write that. It's how does this affect it? You know, what happens in the situation? And then give give the twist of his own voice and his own writing style, which, my God, is totally different from a lot of the stuff that, that you find right. out there. Um, and I think that's going to be a huge challenge, maybe an opportunity, but I think more of a challenge for lawyers going forward when they blog is that, at a certain point, you're just going to shrug your shoulders and go, you know, crap, uh, there's not much more I could write about in terms of... Well, and I think part of, part of it is stepping back um, in the process of how clients become clients, right? And so lawyers often approach uh, blogging with the idea of, I'm going to get clients. Yep. And so they think about, what do my clients want to know? Yep. Uh, and so they're writing for how, what to do when you get stopped, which nobody's going to stop and Google you from the car. Correct. But um, <laughs> Because they got pulled over. But... Um, but I think that's too late in the process. There's too much competition at that point. Um, and so what, instead what you want to do is you want to write, uh, I think you want to write a, a blog that people want to read before they are clients, before they're even potential clients. Um, so like when I wrote my consumer law blog, I wrote more about personal finance than I wrote about what to do when you're contacted by a debt collector. Sure. That post gets a ton of search traffic. But nobody comes back to read my site. So I, I like to talk about building an audience. And this is where the SEO people, the search engine optimization people come up and just show that they have no understanding of content. <laughs> they have right. great understanding of how search engines work and how people get. But that's a really one-dimensional view of, uh, of legal marketing, I think. Because you know, I, I know extremely successful lawyers whose websites are a key source of business but the only way people ever find their websites is by word of mouth. Sure. And so SEO is totally irrelevant there. And SEO can be totally irrelevant to blogging because um, what you really need to be doing is building an audience of people who recognize your blog and come back to it repeatedly to read what you have to say because they find it valuable. And those people aren't potential clients. Potential clients come to your site once to learn something about their legal problem. Um, but I think you need to get them before they become potential clients. So, for example, if I was representing, uh, if, if my practice area was employment discrimination or something like that, I wouldn't write about employment discrimination. I would write about um, how to get a promotion. I'd write about uh, workplace issues. I'd write about, um, you know, how to, how to make friends at the workplace, how to, how to date your coworkers. I, you know, I'd, I would try to write a blog that was interesting to people who had jobs, period, full yeah. stop. And I would try to write a blog that was targeted to people who had jobs, um, you know, and, and not not small business people who own their own businesses and stuff. But uh, but I, that's who I, how I would 
try and write it. So make it interesting so that you can actually build an audience. And then they'll know who you are and they'll know that you're a lawyer if they ever have a problem. Do you think, you mentioned SEO and I struggle with this all the time. Do you think it's SEO for all intents and purposes? And SEO is such a vague kind of word that's thrown around a lot. Um, and a we, lot we of wrote a post called SEO is dead recently because I think it's a misnomer, but yeah. So that's uh, my, my feeling is that SEO is completely dead. I mean, completely and utterly dead with some exceptions, sure. But unless you have a massive budget, I don't even know if that works anymore. Um, SEO, in my opinion, has, has very little value um, to making sure your website's found. I'd love to hear your thoughts on that. SEO, SEO is definitely not dead, um, but it's just much bigger than and, and more nuanced than SEO, right? Lawyers have find, lots of lawyers who, who pay attention to online marketing have finally gotten their heads around keywords five years after Google stopped worrying about them. So, you know, the, so the problem with SEO is it was always all about getting people to your website. And just recently, people started going, wait a second, if they get to a website that's full of keyword stuffed posts that nobody but a machine would want to read, are they going to stick around and click contact, you know, fill out my contact no. form? And of course not. No. So, um, now the the buzz is more about inbound marketing, which is what do you do once people have landed on your website? How do you make sure that they leave their email address or they contact you or call you? Um, that's more of the buzz. So SEO isn't dead. It still has a role to play in how people get to your website in the first place. But the more important question is what do you do with them once they get there? What are you giving them interesting stuff so that they will stick around and hopefully come back and even better? leave something like an email address or like you on Facebook or something if that's part of your strategy so that you can actually continue to communicate with them. I think the 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 even the the more crucial point on top of that for for lawyers and again I'm talking about lawyers that are, you know, that want to start doing this if they haven't already which is just absolutely insane but um if they want to start developing their website, et cetera, is that, you know, a lot of them, when they speak to me, they say, well, look, I have this SEO guy. He promises me the first page on Google, which is essentially three card Monty. It's absurd. You're going to get robbed and you're going to wake up drunk. And Well, it's also know. meaningless because yeah. there's, there is no first page on Google. Zero. Uh, but they don't understand that. And again, they quantify that in, in one way or another. But one of the more important things on top of that is the fact that let's say that you, you mentioned this, let's say the SEO guy or whatever it is, has people that you know, now come to your site, they can find your site. If you're not working constantly on new content, um, on making, you know, creating value for your clients or creating value for generally for the population out there in terms of your voice and what you're saying and um, doing all those things, then it's completely worthless in my opinion. Yeah, I mean, nobody should ignore SEO entirely because if your blog post has a title that isn't related, that, that isn't explicit, explicitly related to what you're writing about, sure. nobody will ever find it with a search engine. Yep. And so rejecting SEO entirely just means that nobody will ever read what you write. Right. Um, so people should be able to find your post about auto repossession, um, but it shouldn't look like it's been written for Google's algorithm because Google's algorithm actually doesn't like things that look like they're written for its algorithm. But um, but more importantly, uh, what and, and this is the... People love to think about SEO in terms of like what should my what should my page look like, right? What should I do as I'm right, writing it? Right. But the vastly that's that's ten or fifteen percent of SEO. The really valuable SEO is other people who read to your content and think it's good and link to it. Those are votes of confidence in that content and votes of quality. Sure. And so the only way to get other people to link to your site short of begging, which never works, is writing great content that people feel compelled to link to. And so, you know, you'll you'll get so much more mileage out of just focusing on writing clear, um, good, in-depth, original content with unique information. You'll get so much more distance out of that than you will about playing SEO games. And so as long as you write clear titles and your posts are good and have good stuff in them, people will link to you and those links will be way more valuable. Because People who find you by search engines are much less likely to turn into your audience. They're likely to come, get the answer to a question they had, and then never come back to your website. Whereas people who find you by a referral, even if it's a link from another website, are probably more likely to stick around for most people. And that's how you build an audience. And I think an audience is so much more valuable than traffic. I'm glad you agree with me that SEO is dead. So, <laughs> I want to talk. 
I want to talk about uh, Clio, uh, the conference, for, for yeah. a couple of minutes, if that's cool. So tell me about your tell me what it is realistically. And tell me about your experience. So it's a user conference. Uh, it, that doesn't mean it's you know it doesn't exclude non-Clio users, but um, it's uh, it's it's interesting from a lot of angles, I think. Um, so first of all, it's pretty good speakers and pretty good content, um, but a lot of it does sort of um, it acknowledges Clio, if not revolve around Clio. So you wouldn't be super interested in a lot of the content if you weren't a Clio user. <laughs> Although, like the keynotes, you know, Sus Richard Suskind is um, if you haven't heard him before, he's worth hearing at least once. Um, and, he's on uh, tour. He always goes on tour with these things. He's at every every conference. Yeah, yeah. he he is. You know, hopefully that's um, you know, hope I, I guess at some point everybody will have heard him, but yes. that, we're not there yet. Yeah. Um, apparently, I've heard this was my fourth time listening to him. I guess so. <laughs> I guess I've heard the same speech several over times. So man, for me, it's God bless for me, man. it's a little old. But God bless. <laughs> yeah, that's not his fault. It's a good no, speech. No, no. I've just Listen, heard it a lot of times. I would do it too. Yeah, um, and this year it was, uh, uh, I think, Cynthia Cohn from uh, from the Electronic Frontier, Frontier Foundation, which had nothing to do with Clio and was fascinating to listen to. Right. Um, and I thought that was pretty ballsy of Clio to invite someone who is essentially uh, on guard about the cloud. Sure. Um, and it, it, I thought it went off well, um, but I, I think they were a little bit worried about how it would go off. But it, it, so it's a user conference, and, and I think so. The conference is just a piece of it. There are interesting presentations and things, but um, you know, one of the things Clio did last year and this year is at the end of the conference they announce uh, new features that they have developed during the forty-eight hours of the conference based on um, users' requests during the conference. Oh wow! Um, so they have they're, they're calling it their smart bar as opposed to genius bar. They're Canadians, sure. so sure, they're no, not willing course. to go full genius. Yeah. Um, but uh, so they have the smart bar, and you can walk in, and they'll they'll walk you through anything. They will help you figure out how to do document assembly in the software or whatever. And if you complain about the way Clio works while you're there, they may release a feature during the conference. But I know they also. I think all the executives are on a retreat this week um, because they they map out their their feature roadmap for the following year based on the information they get from users at the conference. So it's it's it, part of it is a focus group for Clio. Um, and it's sure. also a place for users to come and, I mean, if you go to ClioCon and you talk to the developers and you talk to Jack and Ryan, the owners of Clio, about what you, how you use Clio and what you want out of it, you will be helping to define the roadmap of Clio for the next year. Um, and so it's, it's actually like, if you're a Clio user, I'd go, totally. I mean, this is, it's a great conference, so it's a great place to get your CLE credits. Um, it was at a beautiful hotel and, and you get to influence the direction of the thing that you use to run your practice. So I, I actually think it's kind of a no-brainer. So I guess I've just given you a commercial for ClioCon, but you did, and you, <laughs> and you did amazingly well. I'm actually, I'm, I'm going to go next year uh, because I, I, I don't use Clio. Um, I use their competitor previously, Rocket Matter, um, mm -hmm. but we switch over to Billings as well because a lot of what we do is more transactional than it is uh, hourly. But um, I'm just kind of sick of trolling them on Twitter. I felt like I could just, <laughs> you know, go and, and troll in real life. You um, should, and you and I had a brief exchange yeah. about this on Twitter because, you know, I, the picture that you get of a conference, especially a technology conference on Twitter, is Horrible. I think it's really inaccurate because Horrible. the people who are tweeting are yeah. not the the lawyers who go to the conference. But isn't that crazy? In the fact, I mean, isn't that kind of ironic to a certain extent that this you know conference, which is all about tech, and it has nothing to do with Clio. It's not Clio's fault, obviously, but. You know, you make a really good point about that. The people that are tweeting are some way involved in the tech aspect of the conference, and the lawyers that are going to a conference that are surrounded by tech people aren't tweeting. Yeah, and and that that happens at tech show, the ABA tech show every yeah. year. Um, most, many, if not most, of the lawyers at um, ClioCon and at tech show are there to learn how to operate the parts of their practice that they ordinarily don't have time to spend much time thinking about. Right. I mean, most lawyers you know are they they're frustrated and they try to deal with this stuff, but they are spending most of their time worrying about how to serve clients better. Yeah. And so they come to ClioCon so that they can button that up and deal with that aspect of their practice and hopefully not worry too much about it for the rest of the year, I think. Um, but you know, if you if you learn how to do document assembly the first time, it's like a revelational thing, sure. and it and it makes your practice better and more efficient, and you charge clients less, and you deliver better service for the rest of the year. So, it's pretty awesome for them. And you know, the 
the noise on Twitter are the vendors, the consultants, the the social media dorks like me. Um, I love engaging. <laughs> I love engaging all of them. You aside, I mean, you're you're yeah. fine. Just like go, going back and forth a lot of these. But guys. you know, but you know, so the so when so when people uh, who I guess I won't name uh, start trolling the Twitter hashtag. Who Brian? Brian Tannenbaum. I, I troll along. Uh, with Brian well, Tannenbaum. but you know, I give Brian a hard time, and and Scott Greenfield poked yeah. in to, to troll the hashtag, and you know, they they have a good time, I guess. So I don't want to take it away from them or anything. They have but, a phenomenal time. Yeah, but the the their comments yeah. are just sort of irrelevant because. The lawyers who are at the conference probably feel the same way about the focus on tech. They're they're really interested in it. They want to know it and understand it, but uh, but they're not there to learn how to use Twitter or to market their practice. They're mostly there to, you know, try and you know button up some of the administrative issues that they're having with their practice that happen to revolve around their software. You know, so. I I think the the reason for for some of that as well, and and I think it, it's become sort of just watching it and participating in it over the years, et cetera is that there's these sort of polar opposites at play, right? And you have one one end of the spectrum where someone, and again, this just it depends on who the speaker is, et cetera, and, and this is nothing to do with the Clio conference, but generally if, you know, these ABA tech shows or anything else, you have a lawyer that's saying, well, look, and, and I know, I'm again, not naming names, there's a, there's a young attorney that says, I can do your incorporations, et cetera, and I can do them so easily, and this allows, tech has allowed me to do that, and it's all tech and tech, tech, tech. And these guys who... You know, I want to say are old school, but they're not really old school in that they're really successful guys um, are saying this has zero to do with growing your practice. Because I, I, there's a middle ground where essentially, and I think you're right on in terms of, and I'll, I'll have you talk about what you spoke about, but that there's a convergence and tech is used as a complement, right? If, if I'm sort of paraphrasing what, what you say, yeah. um, tech should be used not as a replacement or an end-all be-all, but it should be able to help you as a lawyer practice, right? Um, and I think there's some polar opposites, or maybe it's it's displayed this way um, when an attorney, you know, from one side says, "Look, I have a virtual office, and because I have a virtual office, I can communicate with my clients in my underwear, and I make three thousand. And that's just not reality. I mean, maybe it is reality for some people, and you know, but there's a, there's a small percentage of lawyers that can practice that way, at least in my experience, effectively. Like we tried. Oh to yeah, do, yeah. We tried to do. I drank the Kool Aid years ago, and we tried to do Skype Saturdays which was the dumbest idea I've had. And I've had just a tremendous amount of dumb ideas where I said, hey, you know, we can't do office hours, guys, but if you want to Skype with me on a Saturday morning. So I sat there every Saturday morning for about a month doing absolutely nothing, just clicking, refreshing ESPN over and over again in the office while you know, no one <laughs> called in because it's not the end-all be-all. Meanwhile, I was salivating for the opportunity to speak at you know, a Chamber of Commerce event or any of those things. On the flip side, you're right. There are some that, that say that, look, you know, there should be no tech or – and I'm, I'm not talking about Brian and Scott, but there are attorneys that say, well, look, this is a total waste and there's no reason to be on you know, any kind of social media. And I think that goes too far on the other end as well. Um, I just think that the way it's – sometimes the way it's uh, expressed or the way it's sort of publicized or advertised is that tech will somehow – revolutionize practice and my feeling has always been that tech will never revolutionize a practice per se it will complement an already existing practice and maybe bring it to the next level maybe help in some ways cut overhead you know increase top line etc absolutely no it's it complement it's like an evolutionary thing right yeah i mean you have to be tech savvy i mean yes. it's just it's just not okay not to be tech yes. savvy anymore yes. that doesn't mean obsessed with tech um, although, you know, like, because oh, I am, right? Like, I'm totally obsessed with tech. I love talking about tech. Sure. I, lo I love talking about the future of law, even though I realize that the singularity is probably a ridiculous concept that's not worth spending much time on. <laughs> but I love it. I'll, I'll, drink I'll drink cocktails and talk about the future of all law right. all week. It's super fun to have that conversation in the same way that, you know, we used to argue about whether zombies or nin robot ninjas would win in a fight. Zombies. So, um, yeah. you know, it's that kind of a conversation. But it's totally possible to overemphasize tech. Tech is tech is a tool. I mean, the the idea that all, you know, to say that tech is not relevant is obviously foolish and and I don't I don't think too many lawyers are saying that. No. But there are an alarming number of lawyers who still, you know, don't really even use email. Um it's a small number, but it still alarms me. Um <laughs> right. Or or don't you know, my thing lately is more um you know, we're so we're really worried about security in the cloud and um, lots of lawyers don't want to take the time to understand what SSL is 
what file and disk encryption and AES is and those sorts of things. And the problem is if you don't have a basic understanding of those things, you can't have an intelligent conversation with your IT person about whether or not you're meeting your ethical burdens. Sure. And you can't outsource your ethics like that. Well, you can. I just think it's irresponsible to do it. So, so lawyers need to be tech savvy and tech competent. But yeah, the idea that the tech will revolutionize law practice and disrupt law and all that kind of stuff, I think are kind of silly. Um, but you know, if you adopt document assembly in your practice, you can save your clients hours of time. And I think that's equally foolish to, to ignore that. So, so tech for tech's sake, bad, but tech as a tool that can enhance law lawyering, absolutely. I also think there's there's these sort of middle ground of people that are totally just drunk. And so what I mean by that <laughs> is that they're just completely like, well, all right, I got to get this tech thing going. So I'm, you know, I'm starting this website, and this is this guy from wherever, you know, outside the United States is going to set up for me for ninety dollars. And then you have Twitter porn avatars, which I like to point out all the time for these lawyers. Um, you know, that retweet something and it's like, visit this Jacksonville criminal defense attorney's office, right? With the, like a half-dressed woman as the actual avatar. <laughs> and you go to the site itself and it's just like, you know, if you've been arrested, call the best bank, uh, best criminal attorney ever um, <laughs> right. in the state of Florida. And they have no idea that this is up. I just emailed a guy yesterday because um, I always, I have a sort of Twitter stream for bankruptcy attorneys, for real estate attorneys, just to see what's going on. 98% of that is just complete and utter garbage. And this one bankruptcy. And unethical. Yeah, and uh, completely unethical. That's the thing. And so that's why there's this sort of, I don't know, they have to figure out. In my mind, if you don't know how to do a lot of this stuff, if you've been practicing for 30 years and you ha don't do this stuff, don't do it at all. And I know that's maybe a, kind of a contrarian point. But I don't think it's worth, you know, unless you can put in a tremendous amount of time and figure out what those SEO guys are really doing and make sure that it meets the ethical requirements and figure out SSL and figure out document encryption, I don't think you should get in the field. Um, so I'll, I'll agree with you for marketing, but I'll disagree with you for, for all other purposes because, you know, if, I don't, I don't know if, I, there's a clip I love to play from the George Zimmerman trial where uh, the prosecutor was trying to nail uh, the witness, uh, Jenna Lauer, I think, on having followed uh, Zimmerman's, Robert Zimmerman, his brother, on Twitter and to, you know, to sort of conflict her testimony sure. out. Sure. And the only thing that was clear at the end of their exchange was that neither the lawyers nor the witness nor the judge nor anybody else in the, con <laughs> the, the courtroom had the faintest idea of how Twitter worked. And so the prosecutor was actually right, but he didn't know enough about Twitter to... to, um, to 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 get that out of the witness. She was conflicted if you think that following somebody on Twitter is a conflict. Um, but he couldn't he couldn't elicit that testimony because he didn't understand Twitter well enough to get it. And I so so that's an example of not understanding Twitter meant that you can't even competently represent your side of the case. Right. And and so it's not okay to sit back and say, well I'm just not gonna understand the cloud. We've got a server in our closet. Well you know what? Your server in your closet is probably less secure than Dropbox. Right. And do you think Dropbox is acceptable? Well, in order to have that conversation, you have to have a basic level under, of understanding of how SSL encryption and file encryption works and where documents are stored and all that kind of stuff. And most lawyers um, aren't able to have that intelligent conversation. And so um, when it comes to just basic protecting your client's information and representing your clients competently, I think, I think lawyers have a duty to understand technology. Then, you know, and I agree with you on that point. This is a conversation, this is a Twitter back and forth that I have with Kevin O'Keefe um, until he stops responding to me, which is essentially always, uh, <laughs> and, and rightfully so. Um, you know, where he, he sometimes posts that you have to, the way he, he pitches it though, or the way he posts is essentially that you have to, you can't be a competent or good attorney without knowing social media, et cetera. And I say, you're, you're completely out of your mind. Um, I take your point in terms of, you know, being able to use tech to display a particular case or, you know, see how Twitter works. But in the prosecutor's office, that, that's the onus is on them to, to be able to do that. And I agree with you in terms of the, the SSL and the encryption requirements that are happening more and more. I just think that, you know, if you've been practicing for a long time, and again, I'm probably focusing on advertising and marketing because that's what a lot of solo and small firms are really looking to this for, um, is to heighten their practice, increase revenue, all of those things that they shouldn't be doing this for. 
mm-hmm. then I don't know that they, you know, I don't think that they should get in. And I've said this to a, a couple of guys that have been practicing for years. You know, it's it's <coughs> not, it's essentially me trying to, so th- there's this club that's not too far from me. Uh, it's about four or five blocks from my office. And uh, it's this really old school club, mahogany walls, cigars everywhere, everything, right? And uh, I went there with a buddy of mine, and he's like, look, we should join for the summer, and this would be great. We'll, we'll meet, you know, big titans of real estate, and they'll obviously want to uh, hire us because we're, you know, having scotch. And again, very idiotic, idiotic idea. I decided to join. Um, I was probably the first Jew that ever stepped in those doors. Mm-hmm. And they, you know, it wasn't, it was just a completely weird environment to be in. And I didn't, I don't want to say I didn't belong there for any reason, but this is an old boys club, right? Where there's relationships for 40 or 50 years. I was never going to get a client there. I was never going to, you know, make any connections per se. Um, and I think an analogy can be made to someone that doesn't know how to use email per se, or uses it sparingly, like hasn't nothing wrong with an AOL account per se, but you know, if you're sending one email a week and you don't really know how to use the internet, perhaps setting up a website is not the best idea. I, I think I think your point is don't dabble. Yes, either do, yes, either do it or don't do it. Correct. But don't dabble, don't try to hire something to do something you don't understand. And correct. I 100% agree with you. Correct. Either do it or don't, learn how to do it or don't. Um, but don't dabble. Don't hire somebody else to do something that you couldn't do yourself. Right. And I mean, to to that point, what are so so a typical small firm solo? How do you see this changing? I mean, they they were talking on again tweeting at Clio a lot about solo and small firm law practice. And again, the the um, the tenor of the conversation has been for the past I don't know four or five years that solo practice is doomed in one way or another because of this or that or oh, it's changing. Yeah. <laughs> what, what do you think about that? How do you see it changing or evolving? And does anyone really even know? No, no, nobody knows. Right. I mean, the the only thing that I can conclusively say that solo and small firm lawyers need to do in order to survive the next five, ten, fifteen years is to, you know, mind the tech, be be competent with technology. Not overemphasizing it, but just be able to use it, be savvy, so that you can be flexible. And that's the other piece is to be flexible. Make sure that your firm isn't too tied down to any one particular way of doing things because it, it may all change. Now, I, I, don't think, um, I don't think there's going to be a massive revolution unless, you know, most of Suskin's predictions, I think, hinge primarily on non-lawyer ownership. Um, and if non-lawyers are allowed to come in and turn law firms into corporations, then I think what we will see is um, essentially storefront corporations where you can walk into Walmart and get your estate plan done. Because you can do it at scale, they can build something like LegalZoom into the background so that you can get the personal touch in the front office and the lawyer or the paralegal walks into their walks over to their desk and pushes the button on LegalZoom instead of making the client do it. Right. And that I think is scarier for solo and small firms than um, than anything else that might happen you know we're not going to have artificial intelligent lawyers <laughs> well oh, and if we do i guess what can we do about it nothing nothing so so uh, assuming the singularity doesn't come um the only thing that that i think we we should be the most worried about is potentially walmart law non-lawyer ownership and then doing consumer law at scale um that i think we should be afraid of and so i think we can just do that first Right. Sure. I think I think small firms can get together, form co-ops around document databases and start building the same sorts of back ends that um, that that a big a big corporation could do. You know, wait, small firms always think that our advantage is in our personal relationships with clients. And I, I tried to debunk that recently in a blog post because a personal relationship is not sitting in the conference room for 20 minutes over, you know, at two separate times. <laughs> Um, but we tend to think it is. Um, I've gotten much more touching personal uh, uh, engagement with big corporations than I ever have with so many, many small businesses. <laughs> and so it's it's not like big companies can't beat us on personal relationships. They totally can. So, so let me pick your brain on this, actually. And it, it goes to your point about um, co-ops, right? So I think you're you're right on in terms of what you're saying. And, and what I've noticed is when I first started out, there was this whole play for specialization. And obviously, you can't specialize in a lot of fields. But essentially, you have one practice area, maybe two. 
if you have more than one or two, you, you essentially cheapen yourself. You're a jack of all trades, right? Right. Um, and you know, when I started my office in Brooklyn, it was in Sheepshead Bay. It was in literally nowheresville. But what we had was sushi restaurants and small law firms. That's it. For like one square mile, there was just sushi places back and forth, back and forth. And there was a law firm, law firm, <laughs> law firm, law firm. It was the most ridiculous place in the world. Sounds like hell. <laughs> oh, it was horrible. It was horrible. I saved every dollar to get out of there uh, and moved to Manhattan. And now it's very expensive here. Um, <laughs> and so, but all of these firms were essentially general practice and they did well. They yep. would do immigration, they would do divorce, they would do real estate, et cetera. And then you have this sort of thing where you can only really do one or two practice areas really well. And and I, I get that and I, I do agree with that point. I think you're right and I think you're onto something um, in terms of the co-ops going forward because it's it's more of, you know, I've been looking more at my clients. If I do real estate, right, I'm gonna have a client that pays me $2,500 for a closing, let's say, or $3,000 on the top end for a closing. And then I probably will never see them again. I may see them in seven or eight years, statistically, if they if they buy something. Maybe they will refer a friend, maybe not. But yep. my lifetime value, right, the actual value of that relationship is around $3,000, which is no good. It's inefficient because you then have to keep searching for more and more and more and more of these. Um, and you can you can put this over to the, not just transactional, you can do this on an hourly basis too um, for a number of areas. But what if that person needs a will? Right. What if that couple is now going through a divorce? Um, I think you'll likely find to to survive going forward that you will have a lot of these sort of pseudo partnerships um, where it, it people used to say, well, I'm going to partner. I never understood partnership per se, but people would say I'm going to partner with someone because it's going to make me look bigger, et cetera, and whatever. There'll be complementary roles per se. But I think there may be a place for these co-ops where you come in and then you go to the same place, right? You go to Dwayne Reed now in New York to get your prescription and potato chips and beer and band-aids. Sure. Um, so you may have this sort of all-in-one shop that you can you can essentially meet with one lawyer in that place for one thing and another lawyer in that place for, for another thing, but they'll have sort of a loose affiliation with each other. Or or even, you know, honestly, I, maybe, the, maybe, maybe the decline of specialization is imminent I, because if we can... It, I think I think a, any practice founded on forms is in trouble. Yes. Right. If if what you are yes. essentially doing is creating documents, yes. um, you can and should be made irrelevant because yes. the, and and this isn't a technology thing, although it's often billed that way. Um, it's been possible for years to create documents that would handle ninety percent of clients' needs. Yes. Um, with very little customization, and you know, in Minnesota. You know, most of the lawyers here have learned to write simple wills and estate plans from the same form yep. put together 15 years ago at Minnesota CLE. Yeah. Um, so that's just a matter of turning that into a, a digital thing um, and pushing a button. And so I, you know, I think I think lawyers who do that have to figure out a way to charge for something besides creating the form. The form is not the valuable thing. The document is not the valuable thing. Um, and I think there's some hope for that. Because uh, I, this is an, another post I wrote recently. I, I think that as long as um, stuff like you know the uh, document website that shall not be named is a do-it-yourself thing, there is plenty of room to add on value. I mean, I I could I could finish. You you saw my my blog cave basement yep. here. Yep. I could finish this myself, but there's no way in hell I want to do it. Sure. Um, you know, so DIY is is a really different market than people who want to hire lawyers. Um, when I when I was representing when I was defending people sued by debt collectors, every debt collection complaint is basically the same, identical. Uh, and so, and I got tired of seeing uh, answers drafted by lawyers who clearly didn't know what they were talking about. Sure, you you can't you know if I if I cover up the account number in the complaint and my my client can't recite it to me and doesn't have a document that matches, well I don't think we can admit that. Um, but yet I would see lawyers admitting it all over the place. And so what I did is I put together a form answer to the form complaints, which was better than any lawyer had put together. And I think that that immediately elim eliminated the value of lawyers preparing answers to debt collection complaints. Okay. So I put it on my website for free, but people, even though it was free, and, and initially I asked nothing for it. It was just you, anybody who came to my website could download it. And thousands and thousands of people did. But even though I made that free, people would still hire me to help them fill out the form that was essentially dummy proof. Yeah. There was there was there was no way to fill it well, that's not true. People filled it out wrong all the time. But <laughs> but essentially all you had to do was copy over the caption 
put your sign on the line and write your name and address on it. There was, I mean, the only way you could fill it out wrong was just by completely ignoring my instructions, which were very simple. Yeah. Um, but people would routinely pay me my hourly rate to come in and help them put that together, um, do the affidavit of service, have me notarize it, um, and put it all in an envelope with their name on it and walk them down to the post office box and, uh, and put it in the mail. And I was happy to do that, but I wasn't selling the form, which was I had made worthless by putting it on my website. It's now worthless because the law has changed. Sure. But um, <laughs> and right. I haven't and I haven't kept it up. I tried to open source it recently, and I ran it by the my former colleague who ended up buying my consumer law practice. And I was like, "Can you help me update this?" And he was like, "Well, the whole thing's wrong." <laughs> so, so, like, all right, well. <laughs> no, look, I, I think you have a you have a perfect point. I think it goes to this sort of bespoke um, culture sometimes where you'll give someone something. So there's a lot of uh, pundits who, who will essentially talk about Tim Ferriss. I, I listen to Tim Ferriss a lot and um, he was, uh, he's speaking to a couple of people and he, he essentially thinks that Amazon essentially is gonna give away books at some point for free, but they're gonna charge for recommendations, right? Yeah. Um, and it go, because there's just so much out there. And you know, if you go to a, a suit supply store uh, in New York, there's a great, it's a great store. Um, and you'll go in and you could buy something, let's say off the rack, or you could pay a couple bucks more to get it customized in one way or another. And a lot of people will pay that, right? And it's the same yep. way with the forms themselves. They'll pay for one hour or two hours of a lawyer's time to make sure it's done per their own requirements. And I think that speaks a lot to your point and to the inefficiencies that there are in, and let's, you know, let's be real, they're just inefficient because we self-regulate this thing. Right. Well, so, and the thing is, like, we we think, oh, well, I can't charge as much for just preparing the form. That's true. You're going to need more clients. Yes. But if you're not charging as much, you can get. You're, it's not going to be hard to find more clients in the first place. Right. So it's 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 just going to be more volume based. I mean, right. In a typical real estate closing in New York, there could be up to five attorneys at a closing table, and all that's happening, literally five attorneys, each that are charging anywhere from one thousand to three thousand dollars for the whole thing, and all that's happening is that. People are signing papers and moving. No one's reading anything per se. Right. <laughs> They're just signing papers. And then there's yeah. a pile of papers that you copy and everyone leaves and goes, this is my house. I mean, you can imagine that I think it's going to happen pretty soon that, you know, we represent banks. We do bank attorney work and we come in with a pile of papers. We say, well, you know, please sign these papers and we send them back to the bank. That is literally essentially our job. And for that job, we get paid almost $1,000. That's completely idiotic. Um, and at some point, a bank's going to go, well, this doesn't make sense. Why don't we just get them to sign it on an iPad or something else, say that they're them, give a piece of ID, say that they've read through the disclosures like anything else, and then call it a day. And right, which, which basically should happen. Which should happen. No, I, I, I'm a vocal proponent of this. Look, it'll, it'll wreck a particular practice areas, but maybe it should. There should be no – and lawyers, you know, I, I talk to my colleagues all the time and they rip me for this. This, we do the same, you know, on the typical real estate contract, and you can put this to any field, you're making the same 10 to 15 changes on every single deal. Yes, there are some deals that are a little bit different, but for the most part, it's the same changes over and over, and you do the same due diligence over and over, and that's it. Um, that's not, you know, what, what Ken White does is very different than, than that, um, and that's to be applauded. Um, but I think something like this, which is totally inefficient, I think it's, you know, some practice areas are, are just, I don't want to say disappear, but you're right. You're just going to need a lot more clients to be able to survive. And that's yeah. okay. Well, and civil litigation isn't immune from the future or anything. No. It's just that the the way, if if litigators are going to become irrelevant or less relevant, it's going to happen in a very different way. It's not going to be because, I mean, I, I was able to turn some litigation into a form, but, you know, sure. fundamentally somebody's got to show up and be an advocate. So, sure. Um, so that that would be would happen differently, but I think the near term fear, which is totally valid, is it's really just not that hard to do a better job of churning out forms. Yeah, so it's what just you, that nobody's really done it yet. <laughs> so then, what do you tell someone that that wants to go into solo practice now? I guess we'll you know running out of time a little bit, so we'll leave off with this. But what do you tell someone that that want that wants to go into solo practice and and says, look, you know, what do I go into? What's going to be a, a good practice area, or how do I survive for the next five years? What what do you even tell them? It's. I don't have a set answer. Um, I wish I did. Um, you know, we. I, I try not to hold myself out as a futurist, although I love to talk about it. Sure. Um, but I think you know, if you're going to go into practice right now, I, I would probably avoid the forms-based practices unless you're going to try, 
with the understanding that it might fail, but unless you're going to try uh, a different approach. Um, and like I said, I think I think billing yourself out as a simple will person or a simple estate plan person and just not selling the forms uh, could be could even be disruptive uh, in a small market. Uh, but it, if nothing else, it's it's worth a try and see how it goes. Um, I think the better approach is to uh, try to be <laughs> this, and this is maybe sort of contrary to what you may think I would say. But um, I I have no interest in being a low value, uh, low fee, high volume lawyer. Um, I think if I were going to start my practice back up, I would do exactly what I did before, which was bill out at a high fee um, for having uh, an expertise in a very small area uh, where I was you know sort of the the expert I wouldn't go into a competitive area um, I wasn't in it before I liked that I liked that most of the clients who called me didn't have a lot of other names on their list of sure. lawyers to call sure so I would probably go right back into a niche where I could bill out at a good hourly rate or or bill at at high flat fees um, and I would keep doing that as the high-end lawyer. Um, I, I don't have a lot of interest in being the low-end lawyer with high-volume work. I'd much rather be doing the interesting work at the high-end, have fewer clients, and bill out at higher higher fees. I'm with so, you. so for me, I think it would I, I would be careful. And and this is you know I had an interesting phone call with Scott Greenfield once about this. Um, and and we were he was asking me questions about my blog because you know I always go around saying that I got about half my business from my blog and mm-hmm. and and that practice was it made it into six figures before I decided to stop doing it. Um, I, I'm I'm not going to stand up and say to anybody it was a ferociously successful practice, but it was successful. It was moderately successful, and I was happy with it. Um, I I made it past the. Uh, the that uh, salary distribution curve, right? Right, right, right. <laughs> I was I was not stuck in that in the big hump around forty sure. to sixty five thousand dollars sure. a year. Sure, but um, but Scott's one one of Scott's points with me was like, you know, that practice might not be the kind that can grow. You know, at at a certain point, you hope to be doing better than that. You hope that you can increase your revenue and increase your income and your profit over time, and you know it. Ten years from where I was, I might be hoping to be making three or four hundred thousand dollars. And the open question is, could I have been getting those clients based on my blog? And I'm not sure that I'm not sure the answer is yes. I, I have no idea. Um, uh, I think my reputation would have built, but I'm pretty sure that those if you know your re- reputation-based business doesn't come through your website. It probably doesn't come through your blog. It comes through referrals. Sure. Um, and so. Um, I think Scott's point, uh, I hate putting words in his mouth, but uh, I think his point was just that, you know, don't be too certain that your fancy SEO campaign or your ad campaign or your billboards are the way that you're going to build your business. And so I think that's right. I think focusing on reputation, quality of service in a practice area where you're pretty sure you can survive the next five to 10 years. I mean, just let's just assume that LegalZoom becomes a an artificially intelligent corporation that can provide simple wills and estate plans and small business plans and member control agreements to anybody who wants them. Right. Like, just just assume that's going to happen and don't do that unless you have a unique approach to it. Um, yeah. yeah. So so I would say you know focus on if you're going to do it now try aim for the high end not the low end because when the computers come calling if they're going to if they're going to eat up business it's going to start at the low end and um, and then just work your ass off because there's not. I mean, everything else is really irrelevant by comparison. Just working your ass off is is job one for I, for like five years. <laughs> I, I, and I think to add on to that point, and, and I met Scott as well. Um, Scott was amazing. Uh, I drove to his house. I was massively late. Got a flat tire. It was a whole. There was a curb your enthusiasm episode before I even showed up. Bagels were cold by the time I got there. <laughs> but one of the things that he pointed out, which was really surprising to a certain extent, was looking at my business specifically, on the financial side, and saying, "Well, can you scale this? Is this something that you can actually do?" And I think that's. That's something that um, it's funny you brought it up. That that I tell lawyers now that I meet the the newbies that come out. What do you want to make, right? And what do you want to do? Because those are huge sort of determinative factors as to what practice area you go into. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of practice areas you can't really scale, um, and if you do, you you can scale, but it, it's the net profit's not going to be there. And and I'm speaking in purely financial terms because I think that's a huge part of the, the actual overall law practice. Um, you know, you're, Scott likes to say you're a professional, but you're also running a business. Um, 
And to your point, I think that a lawyer should really take a look at prior to prior to really saying, all right, I'm you know starting up a solo law firm, uh, I'm doing this blog thing, I'm going to put up the website up. What are you comfortable making? Right. Um, and are you okay with not making more than that? Because a, a lot of times, you know, the conversation that you hear is sometimes you people compare law to some other business or to restaurants or to apps or something. Those places have really scalable products um, that once they hit a tipping point, it, it, they're off to the races for the most part, right? And people always say lawyers have time. Yes, and you, you essentially bill out time. But even time, you have a finite amount of that that you can actually bill until you have to bring on an associate and pay that person. And you know, then you do sort of profit margins um, based on that. So I would just add that you have to figure out what it is that you want to do and how much you want to make and you're comfortable making prior to figuring out, well, I'm going to go into this area or that area. But you know, to, to piggyback on your point, I, I think you're absolutely right. I think whether computers get AI and, and start <laughs> litigating in court or not, I think the days where someone walks in and pays $1,500 or $2,000 to a lawyer for a simple will are going to be gone. You know, you can have a great personal relationship with with a restaurant that's across the street, but if there's one that opens up next door that serves comparable, even sometimes better food quicker for a third of the price, you're gone. Right. Yeah. I, I did that to a coffee shop recently, and I still feel bad about it, but I'm still going to the other one. You're still going to the other one. It doesn't make a difference, <laughs> man. At the end of the day, it's financial, so it's you know, it's not it's not your spouse or anything else. You're, it, it's it's a sort of a place that you pay for something and you, you get a product. So, um, yeah, really, uh, really cool, but scary times at the same time. So, yeah. And I, yeah. And I think, I mean, the, the thing is, and I don't want to be down on it. I think being a solo forever is fine. One of the, one of the lawyers whose practices I admire most is he's partnered up with another guy, but they're basically just sharing overhead and, uh, you know, together they bring in $300,000 a piece in, yeah. for income. And so you can be a true solo or a, a, you know, sort of an autonomous partnership, and you can make a ton of money. That that's not a problem. The problem is making sure that you know your clients are that that you are delivering value, that they're sticking around, and um, and that you've got a practice area that'll last. Yeah. I mean, or if you're gonna, or that you have a plan to scale it. I mean, I think that's fair. If you're gonna do volume, it better be volume that you can scale because it's hard to make money as a solo at volume. Sure. So that makes perfect sense. Sam, I want to thank you so much for spending more than an hour with me today. Um, yeah. This was a pretty awesome uh, podcast. I'd love to do some more in the future with you. So uh, any any parting thoughts or anything else, I'll, uh, I'll let you sign off with it. No, anybody who's listening, if you don't already read Lawyerist, I'd appreciate it if you stopped by Lawyerist.com and just see what's going on there. It's an awesome site. Sam, thank you so much again, man. Yeah, thank you. All right, take care. Bye.